turn it over to Holly Madsen and have her introduce uh, our special guest. And also, Al, uh, please, please also just chime in. We always love doing these. Then we're back at it, right, Holly? We're back at it for the New yes. Year's. Yes. So this is our monthly podcast um, that Fairway Ignite helps us put together for our customers once a month. This is obviously our second one of 2022. So look forward to having 10 more of these this year. And before we get to our special guest, um, I want to let Al say a few words to welcome our clients to the call. Yeah, thanks, Holly. And uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, as Holly just mentioned, second of the year. Uh, this is something we started last year. Uh, and we feel like you know the whole goal is to pro- provide you 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, some platform of value to your business right now. You know, whether it is um, knowing what market's doing, um, hearing from Fairway's CEO and, and understanding the commitment to the wholesale channel. Um, end of last year, spent a little time with Dave Stevens talking about the administration. You know, it's, it's these, these sessions are really there to help you um, align your business and survive the changes that we're going through right now as an industry, you know, not just survive, but really thrive, put yourself in this position where we influence what's going on, you know, as much as we can. There's so many forces, you know, that play into our business. So many uh, nuances, you know, every lender that you work with. So we're just grateful for 30, 45 minutes to, to you know, talk business, to talk shop, uh, to, to hear a little bit from, from Dan and, and, you know, things that, that we can help you with your business. Uh, before we do that, though, you know, there's just wanted to put this message out. We've, we've said this before, um, but there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of chatter right now over the last week in the wholesale industry. Um, and you know Fairway is all about you know, your independence as a broker, uh, your choices as a broker, uh, and the wholesale lenders having to do, do things to earn your business. And when we compete against each other, and when we've got to sharpen our game, what that means to the broker community is you know, a sharper wholesale lending community. And those are the nature, you know, those are the, the forces of nature that should be in play. Uh, we want you to know we're fighting hard to get those, you know, that, that free business environment back to you. Uh, but we appreciate the choice that you make every day that you send Fairway alone. Uh, again, we, we look at it as earning your business um, and uh, you know, we, we value our, our relationships. Uh, you are our lifeline, and you know. Trust me when I say we spend countless hours every day talking about how we improve our platform for you as a broker. You know, so again, you don't just survive this cycle change; you thrive. So again, thanks for a couple minutes of your day today. Uh, with that, Holly, I'll let you introduce our uh, our featured speaker today. Well said, Al. Thank you. So I'm very, very excited to introduce Dan Habib, who's joining us today. Dan has been in the mortgage business for over 18 years, and he was most recently honored by the National Mortgage Professional Magazine as one of the top 40 under 40 mortgage professionals in the country. And he also was presented with Housing Wire's Rising Star Award. He's an integral part of the Mortgage Market Guide founded by Barry Habib. Um, He's also spent time working at Morgan Stanley as a financial advisor, and he's currently the executive vice president and one of the founders of MBS Highway and played a a significant role in MBS Highway's growth over the last eight and a half years. He's recently created a company called Crypto Charged, which is designed to educate investors on the crypto market. So with that, I am excited to turn this 
over to Dan Habib. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, Holly. And hey, everybody. Always great to be on the call with my fairway friends, Sarah, Ray, and Al. So nice to be with you guys. So excited for our talk today. So we're going to move at a fast pace. So put on your thinking caps here. But what we really want to do is talk about a lot of the hot topics out there. So we obviously had a really wonderful year in 2021 in housing. We saw record low rates. We saw 20% rates of appreciation and a really robust housing market. Now we see talks in the media. Are we in a housing bubble? We know one of the main themes for 2022 is going to be the Fed. The Fed has had really loose or easy monetary policy. They've had the Fed funds rate at zero. They've been doing a ton of buying of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, which has kept rates low. But they've also caused a lot of inflation, right? You guys are feeling it. Inflation, 7% on a year-over-year basis, as measured by the Consumer Price Index. The cost of goods has gone up. Gas, food prices, you name it. So the Fed's under a lot of pressure to remove some of this accommodation. So what we want to do today is really explain what the Fed's plan is and also take a little look at history and try to determine, well, if the Fed does hike rates, if the Fed does reduce their balance sheet, what impact is this going to have on mortgage rates, on the economy overall and on the stock market, and of course, on the housing market. And then at the end, we'll, if we have some time, just go through a couple of the tools in MBS Highway, which is a platform that is available to you guys. And because of the relationship with Fairway Wholesale, you guys, if you're not on board already, you can get on at a really big discount, but we'll talk about it at the end. But go over some tools that can help you to overcome some of the points of friction that you're likely facing in today's market. So with that, let's go ahead and jump right in. And as I mentioned, one of the main themes for 2022 is going to be the Fed. So first, let's just kind of break down what the Fed's tools are and what they've been doing, just so you can really get a good understanding of this. So the Fed, as I mentioned, has had really easy monetary policy. One of the Fed's tools is the Fed funds rate. You've been hearing about this. The Fed has had the Fed funds rate for many years at zero. So they've tried to make it an easy monetary policy to create expansion in the United States, to promote lending. And they've also been doing a ton of buying. So the Fed before November was buying, get this, $120 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. Why? They want to inject liquidity into the economy. They wanted to keep long-term rates low. Because when they do that, that promotes borrowing and expansion and helps the economy to grow. Now, they've also been doing what's called reinvestments. Now, you see the Fed on their balance sheet, which they've amassed to get this $9 trillion, which is a massive amount, they hold mortgage bonds and treasuries on there. So every month, what would happen is they would receive money if people make principal payments, people sell their homes, if people refinance. And they've been taking all that money and instead of allowing it to fall off their balance sheet, they've been reinvesting that into mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And that amount, on top of the amount they've been buying, is about, about $70 billion a month. Now, as I told you, the Fed has been under a lot of pressure to remove some of this accommodation. So in November, what did they do? They said, okay, instead of buying $120 billion a month in mortgage bonds and treasuries, we're going to cut that by $15 billion. So they bought 105. And then in December, they up the ante and they said, we're going to cut it by 30 billion. And at the current pace that they're at, they are going to be done with their outright purchases in March. So as of March, they're no longer going to be buying mortgage bonds and treasuries. However, what they don't tell you in the media is they're still doing those reinvestments of about $70 billion a month. But the Fed has come out for the first time and they said, hey, we want to reduce the balance sheet. So what that means is they want to start allowing some of those things to fall off and reinvest less. So these are going to be key themes. And I think something important to look at is 
Why don't we look at what happened with past Fed presidents that were in situations like this? We know Jerome Powell is the current president and see what happened in the market. So going down a little path of history here, this guy here is Arthur Burns. And in 1970, he was the Fed chair. Now, he ignored inflation and it was rapidly rising at the time. And he insisted that it was transitory. Probably sounds familiar because we heard that from our Fed president, Jerome Powell, many times until just recently he removed it from his vocabulary. And during Arthur Burns' time from 1978 to 1980, we saw inflation go from 7% to 14%. Now, he did not do anything about inflation. He remained steadfast. And as a result of the higher inflation, mortgage rates rose from 12% to 18%. Now, this is an important thing to understand. The most important thing that affects mortgage rates is inflation. Inflation is the arch enemy of the bond market, especially mortgage rates or long-term rates. Let's kind of dig deep here as to why. I'm going to give you an oversimplified example, but let's say I said, you know, Sarah, I need some money. Can I borrow $100,000 from you? She might, sure. say, she might say, okay, Dan, right? But she's not going to do it for free. So she's going to charge me a certain interest rate. So let's say whatever rate she charged me, she received a fixed payment every month of $500 a month. And we set terms on this where it's going to be for the next 30 years. Now, Sarah has a list of goods that she goes to the store every month. And with the $500, she's able to buy everything on that list. And maybe for a few months, she's able to do that. But then inflation starts rising rapidly. The cost of goods and services goes up. And a couple months down the road, she notices, you know what? I can't buy everything on this list. It's costing more money. Literally, inflation is eroding the value of my fixed payment that I'm getting from Dan, my fixed interest payment. So she can't do anything about the loan that she gave me because that's we got a contract for 30 years. But what if Ray comes to her and says, hey, Sarah, you know, so you lent Dan money. Can I borrow $100,000? She might agree and say, okay, but after seeing this erosion due to inflation, what is she going to do? She's going to charge a higher rate of interest so she can start at a higher perch as far as the money she's receiving so it can combat that faster pace of erosion due to inflation. So this is an oversimplified example, but it explains to you the relationship of why when you see inflation rising, it causes mortgage rates to rise. So keep that in mind. Now, in 1980, after Burns, who did nothing to fight inflation, Paul Volcker came in and, and he had a goal to fight inflation. So what he did is he hiked the Fed funds rate, which was 11% at the time. Remember, right now it's around zero. He hiked it from 11% to 20%. So he hiked it by 9% in just two years. As a result of that, what happens when the Fed hikes rates? It curbs inflation. Inflation fell from 14% to below 5%, which is a dramatic drop. And because inflation dropped, mortgage rates fell sharply from 18% to 12%. Now, you might be saying 12%, that's still really high, but compared to 18%, you're loving 12%. But there was consequences to the Fed doing all of this hiking in such a short period of time. The S&P 500, the stock market, it dropped by 30%, and then the U.S. went into a recession. Now, Alan Greenspan, the next Fed president in this position, you guys might remember him in the 1990s, he was the Fed chair, and during his time, inflation doubled from one and three quarters to three and a half percent. Now, again, what would you expect to happen with mortgage rates? That pressured mortgage rates higher from 7% to about eight and a half percent. But Greenspan took action and he hiked the Fed funds rate by one and three quarters percent. And it went from four and three quarters to six and a half percent in a year. As a result, inflation dropped from three and a half percent to one percent. And mortgage rates followed suit and they fell from eight and a half percent to five and a half percent. And it sparked a huge refi boom at the time. But again, there were consequences. Stock market fell by 50% from 1980 to 
and the U.S. entered into a recession. Now, this is something I'm trying to explain to you here because the Fed's in a tough spot, right? So the Fed knows we have a lot of inflation. They want to get inflation under control. They want to remove the accommodation and hike rates. But looking at history, if the Fed's not careful and doesn't do this easily, you could see the U.S. be pushed into a recession. And what do we see happening now during you know, this time? We see growth slowing a bit. We're seeing the effects of the stimulus and government spending wearing off. So you know, some would argue that the U.S. could potentially be heading into a recession, which is something that we have to keep an eye on. Now, under Powell, what have we seen happen? We saw rates go from about the lows around 2.5% to 3.5% to 3 quarters of a percent. And as I mentioned, the Fed is currently taping, I believe, tapering. I believe they are going to start rate hikes in March. So they have a meeting March 16th. There's talks that they could hike it by 50 basis points. I think they're going to hike it by 25 basis points. And they're targeting somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three or four rate hikes this year. Some estimates out there in the market are for six or seven 25 basis point hikes. But listen, the Fed, they have two mandates, right? Stable prices, which obviously they're not doing a good job of right now. We're not seeing stable prices. We're seeing rising prices and maximum employment. And the job market does look pretty strong. It's a tight labor market. But they also have a third mandate, kind of an unspoken one, which is asset prices. The Fed does not want to see the stock market crumble. But what I want to show you is what the impact is by looking at some of the charts. Because when your customers hear that the Fed is hiking rates, what do they automatically assume? The Fed's hiking mortgage rates. That means mortgage rates are going to go up. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. Counterintuitively, when the Fed hikes rates, as you've seen in these examples, what happens? Inflation moves down and mortgage rates or long-term rates move lower. You know what rates do move higher is short-term rates. So things like your car loans, some small business loans, short-term rates move higher, but long-term rates typically move lower as inflation gets put in check. So we kind of went through this, but you could see the pattern with all these different Fed presidents. Under their regime, inflation increased significantly. As a result of that, mortgage rates moved higher. The Fed president hiked the Fed funds rate. Inflation came down and mortgage rates came down. But in two of the previous instances here, there were consequences to this and the U.S. went into a recession and the stock market didn't like it. So what's my stock market forecast? Just to touch on this real quick, because all the markets are somewhat correlated. I think stocks are in for a little bit of a tough year. Obviously, all the major indexes were up over 20% in 2021. But like we've seen in the past, when the Fed goes on a height rake cycle, what it does is it causes what's called price to earnings multiple contraction. And you could see that stocks currently, by a lot of different measures, are overvalued. They're extremely expensive. So could be in for a little bit of a tough year in the stock market. Forecast is about a 10% decline. When we take a look at what's going to happen with interest rates, this is a chart that I made, and I really did some digging here and looked at some price history of the last time the Fed went through a rate hike cycle and what happened with the market. So this is a chart of the 10-year. And you could see here, back in December 2016th of 2015, the 10-year was right around 2.3%. The Fed hiked the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points. You could see what happened with yields. Yields moved lower. But then the Fed waited a full year until they hiked rates again, and what happened during that time? The economy picked up, inflation reared its head again, and rates moved up. But then looks what happened here where the Fed hiked rates again. They hike, inflation moves lower, and rates move lower. But then remember I said there's one X factor out there, and that is the Fed reducing their balance sheet. This is something that we have to keep an eye on as far as how much they reduce it and what impact it has on the market. Because if you look at this chart, this yellow line here is where the Fed started to allow the assets on its balance sheet a runoff. So 
So why does the market not like that? Well, you have one of the biggest buyers out there of mortgage bonds and treasuries, which has been keeping rates low, not only not buying anymore, but not doing the reinvesting that they were doing and allowing that to run off their balance sheet. What does that do? Well, there's more supply in the market that has to be absorbed, typically at a lower price. Lower price in mortgage bonds means higher interest rates. So what happened to rates after they started runoff? You could see rates started to move higher. But then in May of 2019, they slowed the pace of the runoff and you could see the improvement. And then in July of 2019, they stopped the runoff altogether and they actually started to reinvest in mortgage bonds and treasuries and you could see yields move lower. So these are gonna be really important things to watch. When we talk about the interest rate forecast, you know, I think you could see mortgage rates continue to rise until the Fed gets inflation in check. So we know they're gonna probably start hiking in March. It may take a little while for that to take an impact. So you could see rates go up if they're not already there towards three and three quarters, maybe even a little bit higher. However, once the Fed acts, once the Fed starts hiking and getting inflation in check, so long as they don't go crazy with reducing their balance sheet, I think you should see rates start to come back down. So towards the end of the year, you could see rates come back down towards 3% after rising in the first half of the year. So strategically, you know, what's the advice here? What should you be talking with your customers about? And also keep in mind that there is a chance that the U.S. in the next few years could go into a recession. And anytime we go to recessionary periods, what do we see happen? We see interest rates significantly decline. So if I was doing somebody's loan today, I would probably advise them to say, hey, listen, I know everybody wants the lowest rate out there. What we shouldn't do is things with upfront costs. We shouldn't be doing upfront MI. We shouldn't be paying points. And maybe we should trade the lowest rate for a slightly higher rate and see if we can get a credit towards closing costs. Why? All of these different things are going to have a break-even point of maybe three to five years or so. And we might have an opportunity over the next two years to refinance you. So I always like to try to look at doing loans, not just one transaction at a time, but how does today's transaction set up with the next transaction we're going to be doing together? And it sounds completely different than your competitors out there who are just like, hey, you know, this is the lowest 30-year fixed rate, right? So this is really being an advisor to them and something that I would suggest. Now, how about housing? So as I mentioned, 2021 housing was a very strong year, over 20% appreciation across the nation, some markets even hotter than that. I still think we're going to see a strong housing market in 2022, albeit not as strong as 2021. There's still going to be robust demand, but due to some higher rates than we saw last year, you're going to see a little bit less demand. But the thing is, is that supply is still going to remain extremely tight. Listen, what drives price in any market? Supply and demand. And we're going to go through some figures on this, but Right now, inventory is at record low levels. There's 910,000 homes for sale, and there's still robust demand out there. Now, even if rates were to continue to go up, would you see some of that demand erode? Sure. Think of it as an example like this, right? Let's say there was a concert, and there was 10,000 seats, and they were sold out. And there was 10,000 people here on the sidelines on the waiting list. Now, if all of a sudden prices, you know, let's say they doubled for the concert, maybe some of these people on the sidelines would go away but you still have much more demand than the available seats there. Kind of like that in the housing market. And it's kind of how it is actually in a lot of markets like on the West Coast. Like if you look at California, right? I mean, those homes comparatively to their homes are, are not affordable, but such low inventory and stronger demand than the supply out there, even if prices are rising, even if rates are rising. And when you have stronger demand than supply, it's going to be supportive of price. I also think that, listen, builders, are they going to put some inventory on the market? Sure, but they're not going to be able to keep up. They're having big labor issues, material issues still. Supply chains are still disrupted. Many people saying it's going to last for a few years. But not only that, they have an enormous backlog. If you take a look at some of these housing reports that have come out, I mean, the, all of the new sales are homes that weren't even started yet. 
So they have an enormous backlog. Some builders out there are actually turning away business because they want to try to catch up. Now, the media, listen, they've been negative on housing for the last eight and a half years. And Diana Olick, we like to pick on her sometimes because she's one of the ones out there that is ultra negative, Adam, Adam Data Solutions. And they've been calling for a housing bubble, saying it's been a bad investment for a very long time. And boy, if your customers listen, they missed a really good wealth creation opportunity for themselves and their families. But just look at some of these headlines. As I said, it's nothing new. In January 20, uh, 17, 2014, construction up, but we're building too many houses. 2015, a bubble larger than 2006. 2016, we're in a new housing bubble. 2017, homeownership doesn't build wealth. Get that. 2018, it's better to rent than buy. 2019, it's about to shift for a bad way for buyers. 2019, again, next year will be hard on the housing market. 2021, the housing boom is cooling. And the housing boom is over in July. Now, we've seen significant appreciation since July and, and some really good wealth creation. So listen, this is nothing new. The media is smart. What do they want to do? They want to get viewership. They want to get eyeballs. And they appeal to the part of your brain called the amygdala that registers fear. So you'll listen. But let's break down some of this stuff with facts and with some demographics, because demographics really are destiny. So this is a chart right here showing you birth rates. Every line on this chart shows you how many people were born that year. It goes back to 1928. It breaks it down into the different generations. You got your baby boomers, your Gen Xers, millennials. So we want to know how many people are going to be turning of age to come to the housing market as new demand. Well, the first thing you need to know is that the median age of a first-time home buyer is 33 years old. So where does that put them on this chart? Well, if we go back 33 years ago, it puts you right here at 1988. What do you see happening over the next several years? And compare it to last year. You see a huge increase in births from last year. In the next several subsequent years, you see big increases maxing up at some of the highest birth rate levels we've ever seen. What does that tell us? You're going to have more people this year than last year turning of age to buy a home. And the next few years, it's going to increase even more and then plateau at some of the highest levels we've ever seen. So from a demographic standpoint, you should be seeing more do, do new demand come to market due to something that's already happened, which is birth rates. Now, people like to say we're in a housing bubble. And when they do, I like to look back to 2007. And if you want to see how many first-time homebuyers there were coming of age back then, well, you'd have to go back to 1972, but you're right here on this chart. Now, we know the housing bubble was caused by a glut of supply, not enough demand to sop it up, and there were some bad transactions being done. Well, why were there less birth rates? Well, take a look. You saw this big cliff here, and there was many things that could have contributed to this, but you saw this big drop in birth rates. And then as a result, 33 years later, you didn't have demand for housing. And you could see this big hole here in the birth rates, completely different than what we're seeing right now. How about inventory? Because inventory is the other side of the equation, right? We know demand is pretty robust, but how about the supply? This is what a housing bubble looks like. 2007, peak inventory levels, 3.7 million homes for sale. How about today? There's only 910,000 homes for sale. How about the amount of households, right? Because we've had some population growth. In 2007, there was 116,000 households, and today there's 128,000. So what does that mean? You have 12 million more households on the demand side, and you have almost 3 million fewer homes for sale. It's going to be supportive of home prices, in my opinion. No wonder why we've had a really strong 2021 housing market. Now, how about when people try to make comparisons to 2006? I saw this article on CNBC, and they said, you know, home prices are up 41% from the peak we saw in 2006. That means we're in a bigger, bigger bubble than that. Well, they forget how people buy homes. 
listen, the media is not very good at math and they don't understand the concept of monthly payment. Now, the monthly payment is how people afford homes, but the home price is important, but so is interest rates and so are incomes. You know where rates were in 2006? About 7%. Today, they're near three and a half percent. So rates are half what they were. How about incomes? In 2006, average hourly earnings was 20 bucks an hour. Today, it's $31 an hour. That means that incomes have gone up 55%. Let's go ahead and look at a real life example. In 2006, we could have bought a home for $300,000. The rate would have been 7%. And that means that our monthly payment, principal and interest would have been 1996. We qualify for the home. We had a $6,000 a month income. And the front ratio, or the percent of your monthly income to your mortgage payment, is 33%. Today, home prices have gone up 41% since then. So that means the home today would be 423,000, but rates are around three and a half percent. So the principal and interest payment is less, even though the home is $123,000 more. How about the income? Income went up 55%. So instead of $6,000 a month, you're making 9,300 a month. Your front ratio would be 20%. Is it more affordable or less affordable than 2006? It's obviously more affordable, the media is not going to tell you this. You can't just look at housing in nominal terms. The rate is obviously important, and so are incomes. And speaking of affordability, I want to show you another reason why the media gets this wrong. Here's what the media sees out there. They see 2021 appreciation up 20%. And at the same time, we saw earnings up about 6%. So they say, well, look, 6%, that's not keeping pace with appreciation at 20%. And Diana Olick, Adam Data Solutions, they say it's unsustainable. Housing is miles away from being affordable. Again, let's do a simple example just to express why this isn't exactly true. So first of all, if we could have bought a home last year, let's just say the payment, principal and interest, was 1000 bucks a month, and our income to qualify for the home was $5,000 a month. Now, we didn't buy the home, so we missed out on the 20% appreciation. But because the home went up 20%, let's say we want to buy it today, simple example, our principal and interest payment would go from 1000 bucks a month to $1,200 a month. So it would be $200 a month more expensive. How much would our income have to rise to match this $200 rise? Well, it'd have to go up by $200. What is that on a percentage basis? It's only 4%. Ah, see, people don't understand that you never use 100% of your income for your monthly payment. There's always a relative relationship. If you look to history, incomes very rarely keep up as far as how much they're increasing with appreciation, but they don't have to. Now, listen, is it always going to be a five to one relationship? Maybe not. But the point being here is they don't have to move up in lockstep because there's always a relative relationship. You're never using 100% of your income for your monthly payment. So my housing forecast here personally is I think we will still see robust demand, not as much as 2021. Part of that is due to higher rates. I think we'll still see very tight inventory, even though builders might be able to chip away a little bit of it. But I think we will still see high single-digit appreciation. If I put a number on it, I would say around 8.5%. But I think it's your job to explain to customers because, listen, it's tough out there to buy a home. It's no picnic renting either, by the way. Rents went up 18% year over year last year, and they can continue to go up. Renewals are going up anywhere between 6 to 8% across the country, and you don't get the benefit of appreciation, amortization. And remember, they can keep going up where your mortgage payment is relatively fixed. But if we got 8.5% appreciation, you need to break this down for customers because they're having a hard time finding homes, they're getting outbid, they're getting discouraged, and they're hearing some of this stuff out there in the media. Well, if you bought a $400,000 home and you saw 8.5% appreciation, you know you'd gain $34,000 in appreciation in just the next 12 months. People don't understand the power 
of even moderate levels of appreciation. No, it's as, as Albert Einstein said, the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. So with that, I guess I'll pause here and just take any questions before I just show you guys a couple of the tools in MBS Highway because some of those pain points that I just described to you, we've developed some incredible tools that can really help you to articulate the point to your customer as well as your referral sources. So Holly, is there any, any questions we should just pause and answer, the, answer there or should I just keep rolling? Uh, I only have one by email, but I tell you what, you keep going and we'll, if anyone has questions, put them in the chat and we're happy to answer that uh, when Dan is finished. You got it. So one of the things we're seeing out there is obviously customers getting into bidding wars, right? It's still a competitive market, getting outbid and they have a hard time evaluating it. Number one, they should be asking themselves, what is the home worth in relation to what the asking price is? But the real question they should be asking is, hey, if I have to bid above ask, how long is it going to take for the value of the home to reach my bid? Essentially, how long is it going to take for me to break even? We have a tool that we developed using our own AVM that will show you what the estimated value of the home is. So in this example, we'll say the home's worth 800000 and the current asking price is right around there, seven ninety nine nine. So it looks like the realtor did a good job of listing this home for what it's worth. But we know to win this home, we bought, got a bid $40,000 above asking price. And this is in California, team. So that means our total bid is around 840,000, but the home today is worth about 800,000. So how long is it gonna take for the value of the home to reach my bid? Well, the answer is in this market, based on forecasted appreciation, six months. And oh, by the way, based on the forecasted appreciation, the opportunity over the next five years, if we saw 6% appreciation is about 286,000. And we give you an accuracy level for the AVM. We put a picture of the home in here, but now you can really evaluate for your customer, is it a good idea? Maybe they're gonna be in the home for six, seven, eight years, and this six month break even makes sense to them, especially when you see the opportunity. It doesn't always look like this. Maybe the break even is seven years and they're gonna be in the home for five years. It doesn't make sense. How about customers that wanna wait? Your realtors, I guarantee you, this is one of their biggest pain points where they have customers that they wanna create urgency, but they say, you know what? I wanna wait six months. I wanna wait for home prices to come down. I wanna wait for rates to come down and they don't understand that the market's not waiting for anybody. So you can show them an example like this. I did this one in my hometown here, Monmouth County, New Jersey, where you can see today the home's 400,000, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, but we're expecting appreciation. The market's still very tight. If you wait six months, that $400,000 home is gonna be worth about 410,000. And you said you wanted to put 10% down. Well, today the loan will be 360, but if you wait six months, you're gonna to have to borrow more. And today the rate's around three and a half, but because inflation can continue to rise until the Fed gets inflation in check, the rate might be about three and three quarters. So what does that mean to you? Well, it means that your monthly payment's gonna go up almost $100 a month. You're gonna miss out on $10,000 in appreciation. And remember, you would have been amortizing this loan to the tune of about $3,400. So it's gonna cost you about $13,000 and your monthly payment's gonna go up 95 bucks a month. You wanna wait, you wanna put an offer in, you wanna keep looking. Your realtors will want you to do this for every single one of their listings, and you can co-brand all this stuff with them. How about a real estate report card? As I mentioned, I think it's very important to be able to articulate the opportunity to customers in their zip code, in their marketplace. So in this one, I put in an MLS number. I put a picture of the home in here. This is in around Denver, Colorado area, and it puts the listing price, 575000 It shows the median home price in the market, the average cost per square foot, and it takes two seconds to pull up from your phone or your desktop. We show you the historical and the forecasted rates of appreciation. And you can see in this market, the forecast 
7.2% over the next year. Over the next five years, 25%. What is that? You know, 4% and change compounded. Not crazy appreciation we're talking about. But again, people don't understand the power of it. The $575,000 home would appreciate by $146,000. This is showing them the financial opportunity for the first time, so then they can make a better informed decision. We also show you the inventory picture, the population, what supply and demand looks like, and you can see demand is much stronger than the homes builders are putting up. You can see there's a big shortage, and that's part of the reason why we're seeing such strong forecasted rates of appreciation, as we talked about. It looks like employment is back on the upswing after the hit <coughs> of COVID. Unemployment rate a little above the national average. Median income's about 50% above the, meet the national average. And affordability, really, it hasn't changed that much since about 2015. That's due to rates coming down as well as incomes going up. And again, this stuff can all be branded and co-branded with your referral partners. Now, how about buying versus renting? You know, how many of us get a question, hey, should I buy or should I rent? And I think most people will say, yeah, it's better to buy. You know, if you rent, you, you have a 100% interest rate. You're giving all the money to the, to the landlord, right? But as an advisor, how much more powerful would it be if we could really break this down? for you? So let's go through an example. Let's say it was an $800,000 home price. The taxes were 55.20. And a comparable rent in the market, which our tool will automatically do for you, is 4,200 bucks a month. And we know rents are going up 6% a year in this market, right around the national level. But let's say, let's skew this towards renting. Let's say they got a steal on this rent and it was $3,900 to make it look like a better picture for renting. The mortgage rate in this example, we'll say is three and a quarter and they put 10% down and they're gonna be there for seven years. And this is an orange county. So you plug all this information in, you plug in the information on the property and we are not trying to skew this towards buying. We're trying to build trust. So we're gonna point out some of the negatives, some of the things that they should look for. And they should know that, hey, property taxes, they can go up. Let's put an escalator in there of 2%. You're going to have maintenance and repairs you wouldn't be responsible for if you were renting. So let's put that in there. And then when you sell the home in the future, you're going to use a realtor. Let's put a full commission here when you sell the home. You put in the loan information, you put in the home ownership details, and here's the breakdown. Most customers see this. They see, well, on a total expense basis, it's $44.35 to buy per month and to rent it's $39.56. So, you know, it looks like it's about $500 more expensive to buy versus rent. But remember, rents are going up 6% a year. And you can see by the third year, the rental cost eclipses the purchase cost. And after seven years, you'd actually be almost $23,000 cheaper buying versus renting on a cash flow basis. But nobody talks about the amortization. Remember, part of that principal and interest is your own money that you're paying every month. And as you pay the loan down, you're going to amortize $111,000. Based on a 5% appreciation rate, your home would appreciate by about $380,000. Tax benefit, it's not what most people say it is, because remember, there's only a benefit if it's above the standard deduction. So let's tell them the truth on that one and discredit our competition. You can see it's a very small amount over the seven years. And then how about that cost to sell? Full $70,000 cost to sell, 6% commission on the future value of the home. So imagine walking a customer through like this and saying, well, is it better to buy versus rent? Well, in this case, actually $443,000 better to buy versus rent just after seven years. Powerful. Really being an advisor and breaking this down, taking everything into account. Now, this is the AVM that I had talked to you about where instead of customers going to Zillow, we have our own AVM on our site that you could brand, you could co-brand with your realtors and the customers, you could put a widget on your website. The customers, instead of going to Zillow looking for homes and then getting pixeled or getting marketed to, 
you can keep them in your own ecosystem. So you can pull up a property, it's got predictive text, it'll show you all the past sales, the comps in the area, it'll show you the number of properties sold, It'll you can even adjust the value of the home if there was any modifications done to it. And then how about refinances? We've seen refinances, I just saw the data this morning, they're down 52%. Now, obviously, we wanna be purchase-centric and focused, but depending on your mix of business, that could certainly impact your incomes. How do we be smarter and how do we still do transactions, refinance transactions, even in a rising rate environment? Well, sometimes you got to take what the defense is giving you, which is a sports analogy with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend. And what are they giving us? Well, they're giving us higher rates, but they're also giving us a ton of equity that people have earned and, and grown in their homes over the last several years. Average customer out there, they gained over 30% equity, about $60,000 in just the last year alone, and that's on average. So let's see if we can maybe consolidate some debts that they may have, because most of your customers, they like to use credit, take some money out of the home, pay off some of these debts, and see if we can save them some money, and then see if we can also show them ways that they can accelerate their mortgage and maybe prepare for some life goals that they may have. So real quick, going through this example, the current rate's 4%. We look at our customer's rate. We're looking through our database of customers. They got a rate of 3%. How many people here are going to call them? Probably nobody, right? I think you can't help them. Let's continue, though. So they bought a home three years ago for 500000 bucks. They put 20% down. So it's not even like they have mortgage insurance that we might be able to remove to make this scenario look a bit rosier. Estimated value of the home today, 625000 They have 374 left on the loan, 27 years left. And as we talked about, the current rate today is 4000 bucks. Um, 4%, and the closing costs, let's just make believe, are $4,000. But they have debts. And I put some debts in here that I think a lot of customers can relate to. They have a Visa, MasterCard, Discover for about $20,000. They got a Best Buy card, a Macy's card. They got a car loan right around the national average, about $30,000. And then they pay alimony of $650 a month. So initially, it would be more expensive to do this transaction. But take a look. They're at a 60 LTV. When they started, they were at an 80. They put 20% down through appreciation, through amortization, they're now at a 60. And I set the limit here to a 75 on a cash out refi. So what does that mean? That means we have $91,000 of available equity that we could tap into, increase the loan amount, and pay off some of these debts. And if we were to do that on this interactive tool that you could share with your customers, we would actually create a savings for them of almost 1,800 bucks a month. And that's while taking them from 3% to 4%. Imagine if we were saving them in rate or the differential wasn't 1%, a more realistic scenario. Or imagine if we were removing mortgage insurance. But what if you get a customer that says, you know what, Dan, that sounds great, but you know, I'm already three years in on this loan. I don't want to start a new 30-year term. Or maybe they, you, know, you uncover that they're not prepared for their retirement or for their kids' college. They have a couple of young kids. Well, we just created a savings for you of almost $1,800. What if we take that savings and apply it towards principal every month? If we did that, did you know that your new loan term would only be 11 years and 11 months? We would save you 15 years in one month compared to how much time you have left on your current loan. Expressed differently, you go from 324 payments left to 143, we'd save you 181 mortgage payments. And guess what? After five years, guaranteed, you would amortize an additional $111,000 compared to what you're doing now. After 10 years, 250,000. And after 11 years, 11 months, you'd be mortgage-free and you would have amortized an additional $310,000. We're showing you a way to pre prepare for your retirement for your kid's college. You're really being a debt manager and the epitome of an advisor.
Hey, the last one Leon, I, yes. I just want to, again, I know you're going to talk about uh, sure. MBS and, you know, share the, share, share how to get on here and, and make sure you utilize all the tools, but you hit on being a mortgage debt advisor. And we mm -hmm. talk a lot about that. And I want to say to our broker partners, if you're not already doing that, you need to do it. And how do you do it? Again, MBS Highway has like the whole blueprint uh, that you can follow. It's super simple, but I love I love how you present it and all, you know, putting that together for borrowers so they can see. Anyway, didn't mean to interrupt, just had to plug that. You got it. You got it. So um, if I have a couple more minutes, I'll just show you a couple other things. And uh, OK, so the other thing I think that's important to break down for customers and, and to keep the trust intact is which loan options best, right? I mean, this could be something that can be confusing for the customer. You know, I think at the end of the day, all they care about is, is listen, without confusing me, what's the lowest cost loan option? And oftentimes it can be not just a simple answer because many of the options can be the best. It really depends on when, how long you're going to be in the home and how long you're going to have the same mortgage. So what we did is we put this on a beautiful timeline to really keep that trust intact and have you being somebody that the, that the customer can understand. And in this example, you can see we put five loan options on here and we break down on a nice timeline, which option is best when. In this example, if you're in the home two and a half years or less, the 30 year fix with monthly MI is the best bet. Two and a half years to five and a half years, a seven year arm. Five and a half years or longer, the 30 year with two points with upfront MI. Maybe the customer says, you know what, Dan? I don't want to really do the arm. I'm not comfortable with it. Remove that option and it shows you the best options. Maybe they say, you know what? I don't want to pay points. So what you're really telling me, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, is you want a 30-year fixed and you're not sure if you should do monthly MI or upfront MI. Well, the break-even is about three and a half years. So if you're going to be in the home with the same mortgage for longer than that, it might make sense to do the upfront MI. Now, the conversation I would probably have is, is, you know what, we should probably do the monthly MI here because we might have an opportunity to refinance you before that three and a half year break-even because of some of the things we talked about, the Fed hiking rates, curbing inflation, the potential for a recession where you see rates drop. But these are the kinds of conversations I'd be having, planning your loans two at a time. The last thing here is social studio. Uh, this is something where I think everybody wants to do social media marketing out there, but how do you do it, right? I mean, you wanna do videos, people pick up their phone and they kind of freeze, they don't know what to say. So what we've done is we've turned your computer into a teleprompter. We give you great scripts. You can adjust the scroll speed, the font size, it captures your camera. And if you can read for 35 seconds, you can be a web liberty and you can really amplify your message out there. And we give you a ton of these scripts. You can make your own scripts and just use the technology. And then the last thing here is just, if you are interested in becoming a member, it's normally 200 bucks a month or 2000 bucks a year, but because you guys have a relationship with Fairway Wholesale, we've discounted that down for 119 a month or 1199 a year. And if you wanna sign up, you can go to mbshighway.com and use the code FW. Or you could just email Christine at mbshighway.com if you have any questions or you need help. And that's it, team. So I'll take a quick look here at the uh, question box and see if there's anything I can answer. Or if you guys have any questions, please feel free to pop those in there. Well, we've gotten some questions about what you think rates are going to do this summer. Uh, <laughs> so look at <laughs> yeah. the ball and tell us. Get your, get your crystal ball. Dan and tell us. Everybody, so, Mike Frat Fratatoni saying one thing, Dave Stevens is saying something else. So, so, so here's the thing, right? So we know the Fed's going to be hiking rates in March. And let me just take the uh, screen share off here. Well, I'll, I'll just leave it up so you guys can write that down if you want to. So we know the Fed's going to be hiking rates in March. 
I think that before they do hike rates, I think you'll see them go up a little bit more. I believe we're going to see peak inflation probably in March uh, when we get the February, probably in March, which is when we'll get the February reading because there's like a 30 day lag there. So I think March is when we'll see peak inflation, probably somewhere near seven and a half percent. We're actually getting an important inflation report tomorrow, where if you see an upside surprise there, which there's a chance that there may be, you could see rates not like that and move a little bit higher. So I think you'll see rates creep up a little bit more. But then once the Fed steps in and it's going to take some time for that to kick in, you know, they might go up, you know, a little bit above three and three quarters, maybe towards four percent. But then on the back half of the year, so, you know, maybe your August, um, September, October, November, December in that area, you could see it start to come back down towards, you know, three percent. But the one X factor, the reason why this is a tough question to answer is because a lot of it's going to depend on what the Fed does with their balance sheet. You know, if the Fed starts really aggressively reducing their balance sheet, as we showed you in the chart, you know, if we just go back to this chart here, you can see that when we when we hike rates, rates move lower, actually, because it cuts on inflation. But when the Fed starts reducing their balance sheet, depending on how aggressively they do it, you could see rates move higher. So it's going to really depend on those two factors. But I do think there's a good chance that you'll see rates move up in the first half of the year and then start to come down in the second half. And I do have one follow-up question that came by email. Given everything that you just said about the anticipation of rates going up a little bit, how does the government's emphasis on low to moderate income that we know is a, is a hot topic this year, how will that play into trying to stabilize rates to get more people to, be, to qualify for housing? Do you think that has any emphasis I, in this? Well, you know, I don't think so. Uh, you know, they'll be the first to tell you that you know, their monetary policy and, and the way it should be is that it's completely, you know, that's completely irrelevant to it, right? So, you know, the Fed's job is, is employment as well as inflation, keeping inflation in check. Those are, they're only like kind of two really main responsibilities that they're supposed to try to impact monetary policy with. Now, as I said, you know, they may have some other ones like the stock market. They don't want to see asset prices, but I don't think that they are factoring that in. Um, I think that they really care about, hey, we need to get this inflation in check because, you know, inflation is, is if it gets out of control, it's a bad thing. I mean, you can see some crazy examples of this Zimbabwe, Venezuela, but what it does is it kills savers, right? Because you have money in your account. If you see runaway inflation occur, which I don't think we'll see, of course, the Fed's going to act here. But, you know, if you have $100 in your account today, next year, it's going to feel like you have 93. But imagine if you see faster paces of inflation. So I don't think that they're really looking that to determine their monetary policy at all. All right. And we have one more question from Jonathan. He'd like for you to talk about crypto charged. Oh, Jonathan, that's nice of you. <laughs> so, uh, so real quick, I created a company called crypto charged. It's uh, kind of like an advisory service out there for people that are interested in learning about crypto or investing in the space. And the reason why is because I just saw so many people investing without knowing the first thing about what a cryptocurrency is or what coins look like they are doing some good things out there versus what coins are, you know, kind of like junk coins that have no purpose. So every day we do a video, we break down the news, we break down projects we like, we do technical analysis, on-chain analysis, and you know people seem to really like it. So if you're interested, if you go to cryptocharge.com, you could sign up for a two-week free trial. Okay. Yeah. Then we had a request for Led Zeppelin. I, <laughs> I was just going to say, Ray, I don't know if you see that. They're requesting you to play a little guitar to uh, sign, us, sign us out. That is funny. 
Led Zeppelin. Don't do the stairway head. I'm more of a. <laughs> I, I'm more of a. I, I, well, yeah, I got the ukulele up there too, but I'm I'm more of a, a Gordon Lightfoot guy, right? Love this, I, right? So, um, if so, we if we all would just have a couple of pieces of pizza and you played a little Gordon <laughs> Lightfoot, and then we could all just lay down for a nap. <laughs> We love you, Ray. <laughs> Dan's like, this is the first. It's awesome. Uh, thank you, Ray. That was great. Yay. And thank you, Dan, for the very, very generous offer to our wholesale clients for NBS Highway. That was um, very, very nice of you. Very generous of you. Um, got a lot of positive comments in the in the chat. We'll get the podcast available as soon as it's ready from our wonderful marketing department. Um, Al, if you are still on, or do you have anything to wrap us up with? Yeah, I just, I have a, a thought after listening to Dan for the last 30, 40 minutes. Um, we're, we're getting back to an environment where knowledge is power and tools are differentiators. The last two years, it's been a really unique industry. You know, some say would say it's been the, the, the craziest two years in, in the entire industry of, of the mortgage history. You know, so, so we find ourselves shifting into a market and for 40 minutes, they just went over how we separate ourselves from competitors, how we sell borrowers. And knowledge is one thing. You know, knowledge is definitely power, but I think in the market that we are in today, that tools like what you just saw, the MBS Highway, being able to, to put information in front of borrowers and help them make educated guess, or sorry, edu an educated decision instead of a guess, starts differentiating you from the competition who sells rates, mostly, rates and pricing. So, you know, I, I just encourage you to, to invest in yourself, invest in your business, you know, and, and really have the mindset as we move forward in 2022 that it's a year to retool and, 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 and you know, kind of get re-energized about creating the business opportunities for ourselves. They're out there. Um, and like I said, knowledge is power. These tools, you know, are differentiators. Dan, thanks so much for your time. Um, just, you know, I appreciate what we've been able to do, Holly, uh, together with our Ignite team. And I think, you know, the, our broker community, our client community will continue to see Fairway Ignite be a source of value to you as we keep bringing the Fairway Ignite team over into the wholesale channel here at Fairway. So thanks for your time today. Uh, it's a well. privilege and a, and a pleasure to, to work with you know, such great customers. Dan, thanks for giving us a couple minutes. Sarah. I got something. I got something. And Dan, you can chime in. Um, I'm hoping we can have Ivy Zellman. She's a housing expert that I got to meet through uh, Dan and Barry next month. So we're going to keep bringing great speakers to you guys uh, and just keep providing value like Al said. So anyway, Dan, thank you. As always, you're so wonderful. Thank and you. I, and I'm listen, Ivy's live fish in that tank of yours. <laughs> There is. I Ivy's a real, uh, a real treat, guys. So that's going to be an awesome call. She is. Uh, she's been called the most powerful woman in real estate, but she's brilliant. Uh, she's yeah. great. So uh, look forward to that one. Before. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Bye.